I think cardiac arrests are probably one of those calls that we all joined the job for. The opportunity to attend the sickest of patients, to provide life-saving interventions and hopefully achieve a return of spontaneous circulation, is the very heart and soul of paramedic work. And as much as we often talk about areas where paramedic training falls short, advanced life support is very much our bread and butter. Resuscitation is an area where paramedics excel, but what about when we get a ROSC? This is where our education can start to fall down. Often, our treatment can be algorithmic and focused around quality indicators. But what is happening during post-ROSC syndrome? What are the best ways for us to manage and control blood pressure? And is recognising ROSC about more than simply finding a pulse? We've got all that and more coming up. And there's no pun this month. The ones that I thought of about cardiac arrest were just shocking. Ambulance General Broadcast, any vehicles available to book on or come clear for an outstanding Category 1 emergency. So hello and welcome to General Broadcast, my name's Josh. And I'm Simon, and I'm back. You're back after, after a little <laughs> bit of a hiatus, I've replaced Alex with you. Yeah, uh, yeah. So um, we'll, we'll see how well you behave, otherwise you're going to go straight back into timeout. Yeah, oh, uh, I think the A-team are back together personally. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, don't tell Alex I said that. <laughs> no, it's, it's like the good old days, isn't it, before he came in with his inappropriate comments and yeah, his uh, insults at my expense. So, Simon, this month we're talking about uh, post-ROSC care. This is a really interesting topic, isn't it? And I think one that, uh, as I said at the start, a topic that most paramedics uh, feel comfortable with and uh, one people get very passionate about and, uh, and and keen to be the best we can be because because these are the calls we joined the job for, aren't they? Yeah, and that's kind of what pre-hospital care was expanded for, wasn't it? Was the cardiac arrest management and, you know, delivering advanced life support earlier to patients. And I think that we're really, really good at cardiac arrest care. But maybe, you know, our post-ROS care, once we actually get the patient back, could be um, could be a little bit enhanced. So hopefully this podcast will be really useful to people. Yeah, if, if, I, th- if I think back to my um, my university training on the subject... Uh, the ALS care was really, really good, and we did a lot of drilling on that. And then most of our post-ROSC education came down to post-ROSC bundles, and, and it became quite algorithmic rather than the diagnostic thinking that we should be applying to to, to all of these patients. Yeah, I, I seem to remember uh, like doing some OSCE practice with you guys when you were at uni, and I, I was just chuckling to myself earlier and thinking because we're going to do some stuff on targeted temperature management later and um i remember we used to sling ice packs around people's groins and under armpits and stuff like that and that was in your era wasn't it when you were a student uh, it was yeah and then it was removed and uh we'll see whether or not that's coming back um but yeah loads to cover uh we we kept a time last month i don't think we're going to be doing the same uh with this subject and because you're here and uh you can <laughs> What are you trying to say that I I, I waffle? (laughs) (laughs) We'll see if we can limit it to two soapbox type rants this uh, this episode. Well, let's get started. 
So as always, let's take a little look at the the epidemiology uh, and the occurrences of this. So ambulance services in England attempt approximately 30,000 resuscitations each year, most of which occur either in the home or in the workplace. Uh, And 80% of these resuscitations, 80% of these cardiac arrests are due to a cardiac etiology. And about a quarter of cardiac arrests will present in an initially shockable rhythm. Now, this podcast is about ROSC, which occurs in about 30% of attempted pre-hospital cardiac arrests, which is a figure that has seen a small increase uh, over the time that I've been a paramedic, but but not dramatic increases. Uh, it's about 30% of all pre-hospital cardiac arrests at the minute, but this is much higher in arrests that are termed Utstein Comparator Group arrests, uh, which, which achieve about a 54% chance of ROSC. So for those that don't know, Utstein comparator groups are discussed a lot in cardiac arrest statistics, and this is used to refer to an internationally agreed set of criteria that mean the patient should have the best presenting features in order to get a ROSC. So these are arrests of a presumed cardiac origin that are witnessed to collapse and have an initially shockable cardiac rhythm. So this essentially makes for the fairest comparator group when looking at system changes and interventions affecting ROSC rates. So that's a ROSC rate of 30% in the UK for the majority of cardiac arrests. Uh, That doesn't, however, equate to a 30% survival to discharge rate. And as most people listening are probably aware, the UK's survival to discharge rate sits somewhere around the 8 to 10% mark fluctuating from month to month, uh, which, although not the worst, has remained unreasonably changed in recent years. And that's definitely the sort of survival to discharge rate I remember talking about when, when I was a student in uni and is that the case um like around the world as well are there other ems systems that perform better than us to your knowledge uh yeah so there are so i had a um yeah i had a little look for this so there's a paper into so there's a paper in 2021 that was published in the lancet uh that compared various registry cardiac arrest registry systems around europe uh and they put that you know um their their rosc rates and their survival to discharge rates and the uk performed um pretty well compared to a lot of european places as as far as uh pre-hospital rosc rates go but but we're definitely not the top performer in survival to discharge. So the so the Netherlands, for example, have a 19% survival to discharge rate. Uh, there's areas in Germany that are sort of 18%. And, and the top performer that was listed in this study was uh, an area in northern Italy that had a survival to discharge rate of 27%. Obviously, that's a, a retrospective uh, study looking at cardiac arrest registries and, and there's probably lots of confounding variables within that and the reasons why are probably multifaceted i'm sure you know it, the the general health and well-being of italy based on their diet and things are, are probably better than ours so there's probably some of the patients in their registry are healthier to start with but one of the possible reasons and one of the interesting reasons that was listed in that paper is the way that these these systems and services use non EMS first responders. So a lot of these places use fire and police um, to to, to respond to to cardiac arrests, uh, which is happening broadly around the UK. But something I found really interesting is this area in Italy uses taxi drivers to to alert to the closest cardiac arrests as well, who might be able to, you know, attend, provide aid or collect a local defib. So 
the, the sort of the concluding point there is one of the most influential changes that a system can make with regards to survival to discharge rate is the the type of responders that they're using and probably you know as we can all imagine time to cpr and time to defibrillation and obviously that's really important because if we don't get a ROSC, then this entire section becomes irrelevant. We still have to have patients where ROSC is achieved and that have had good uh, basic life support provided early with a good potential chance of neurological recovery. So we've established then that we have to have a good resuscitation attempt to get us uh, to the point where we can start to look at post-ROSC. But what problems do we encounter in post-ROSC? So, Josh, do you want to start us off by talking a little bit about a post-ROSC syndrome? Yeah, sure. So I think post-ROSC syndrome is a really useful term to to use. And I think it's really helpful for us to think about these patients as suffering from a, a new thing. So we think about cardiac arrest as a bit of a bundle. And then rather than ROSC as a bit of a bolt-on of things to achieve on the way to getting this patient to hospital, we should really think about post-ROSC syndrome as a manifestation of, in its own sort of right. Um, and, and then we can really start to tailor our care. So this is a term that's given to the collection of manifestations that occur as a result of global body hypoxia. We often talk about the hypoxia of the heart and the brain in resuscitation, don't we? But when we're talking about ROSC, we need to really consider the fact that this is a whole body process causing global tissue injury. So the main elements that are occurring in post-ROSC or post-cardiac arrest syndrome are hypoxic brain injury, myocardial dysfunction, systemic reperfusion injury and an associated inflammatory response and then the precipitating pathology that put them into cardiac arrest in the first place so let's talk about each of those uh, and sort of break down what's going on let's talk about systemic reperfusion injury so uh, as i say this patient has had a global body hypoxia they have global cellular injury uh, occurring as a result of the cardiac arrest uh, and this is this is proportional to the hypoxic insult time. So the length of time that they were in cardiac arrest is probably proportional uh, to the degree of global cellular, in cellular injury that has occurred. Uh, and this results in a massive cytokine release as a result of this cellular injury. So, so all of these cells that have become hypoxic start off their inflammatory response uh, to injury, which, which uh, is cytokine release. And this in turn causes a systemic inflammatory response syndrome. So, you know, very similar to what's going on in sepsis as we know from sepsis this goes on to cause all sorts of perfusion problems we get vasodilation we get increased vascular permeability uh, microvascular perfusion failure to, to organs and poor vasoregulation uh, with, within sort of organ systems uh, and this causes a counterintuitive worsening cellular hypoxia this uh, immune response is also responsible for the manifestation of post-arrest pyrexia or post-arrest hyperthermia. And we know that that is a bad thing in hypoxic injury. So we know for every one degree increase in body temperature, we get about a 6% increase in the uh, cerebral metabolic oxygen demand for oxygen, uh, which again worsens hypoxia. It worsens that uh, delta between our ability to supply oxygen to the brain and the, the brain own demand for oxygen so we want to avoid uh, pyrexia if we can 
And finally, then, as a part of this systemic reperfusion injury, we get free radical formation. So free radicals are oxygen molecules with a spare electron. And this is resulting from injured mitochondria that poorly reduce the oxygen molecules. So mitochondria are responsible for, uh, you know, the utilization of oxygen and the reduction of oxygen in order to create energy. Well, when they're injured on this global cellular uh, scale, uh, we get this formation of free radicals and free free radicals react with protein structures and cell membranes, chemically altering them, causing further cellular injury. So I guess in summary, this uh, systemic reperfusion injury, we're reperfusing uh, the body. We get a, uh, a paradoxical worsening of perfusion because of the systemic inflammatory response syndrome that's going on. And I think it's really important that we look at that element because because a lot of people might be listening thinking well these are really in depth they're advanced elements you know they're less commonly discussed it's more of a cherry on the cake you kind of nice to know not need to know type of thought process and i think that's how we used to think as well and and you know and actually are, are they relevant to our practice but when we think that there is evidence out there that looks at mi that 50% of the damage to the heart from a myocardial infarction actually comes from the reperfusion injury itself, then this is definitely not a small thing and something we really have to bear in mind when we're providing holistic care to the post-ROS patient. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I again, I used to think, oh God, this is really in-depth biochem. Do we, do we really need to know this? Surely it's just, you know, airway, breathing, circulation, CPR, all that kind of stuff. But um, but yeah, like you say, in, in certain circumstances, this is responsible for over half the damage uh, and definitely in, in this instance, um, this is a huge, huge element that the patient now needs to overcome. So we need to understand what's going on uh, and we need to understand how our pre-hospital care and intervention can can start to help and not hinder uh, recovery from this. And, and that's the, the nail on the head there, Josh, is that this is about developing and improving outcomes. Um, and yes, whilst practically we can, we apply the principles to into the A to E approach, the stuff that formulates that A to E approach in post-ROS care comes from this baseline of evidence. And if we can improve that by understanding these things in a little bit more depth or by targeting future research that can improve these outcomes, then this is going to be good for our patients. So yeah, I think these are fantastic underlying principles that are going to kind of formulate into our post-ROS care and make it better as we move forward with resuscitation development. So that's the kind of global hypoxic injury that I've talked about, but uh, I did mention that hypoxic brain injury is uh, is another element of this post-ROSC syndrome. We talked about it fairly extensively last month, Simon, but do you just want to summarise hypoxic brain injury and, and some of the things we need to think about there? Yeah, so I probably won't give it uh, as much um, justification as you and Alex did last month. But effectively, with a hypoxic brain, um, you get cerebral edema, um, which causes a raised ICP and impaired auto-regulation of blood flow. This obviously results in hypoperfusion and then worsening of the hypoxic brain injury. And this is one of the core concepts that we often miss when we're talking about cardiac arrest. You know, we, we think about ROSC, we think about survival, but but we don't actually always consider survival to a good neurological outcome so it's really important that our resuscitation is targeted to try and make the best neurological outcome as possible and this is worse than still um, in patients that start to regain consciousness after ROSC um, if they're not properly managed 
yeah, as patients become less obtunded, start to potentially wake up, um, that there's a lot about the early stages of ROSC management that could be quite hyper-stimulating for them. So we often will have an airway in them, that, whether that's a tube or an eye gel, uh, which can be really hyper-stimulating, particularly as they regain their laryngeal reflex if they're starting to, to wake up once they've repaid this oxygen debt to their brain. There's obviously the pain of multiple rib fractures if the patients, if we're either ventilating the patient or if the patient's trying to ventilate for themselves, that, that will obviously be, uh, be causing a pain response. And then depending on how close to consciousness uh, they get, there's there's probably going to be the, the physiological response of fear and panic uh, and, and then potentially fitting from that hypoxia. Uh, all of these elements will be increasing the cerebral metabolic demand for oxygen. Uh, and as I've said, what we really don't want is that demand to be increased any more than we can help it because as soon as that oxygen supply and demand delta uh, becomes... Di, di, sort of divergence um that's when we start to have a worsening of secondary brain injury so we want to supply everything we can and then we want to minimize cerebral stimulation and hyperstimulation uh, as much as we physically can and, and we'll talk about how we can do that a little bit later so we've talked about the systemic reperfusion injury we've talked a little bit specifically about hypoxic brain injury Josh, tell us a little bit about uh, myocardial dysfunction in relation to the post-ROS patient. So, sure, yeah, nearly all of these patients are going to have an element of myocardial dysfunction, just varying severities. So what's going on? Obviously, the myocardium has been injured as either a combination from a primary cardiac problem uh, such as an, an MI, um, but also uh, the hypoxic insult of being in cardiac arrest. And even though we might have been doing some CPR, we know CPR is probably only generating around 30% of a normal uh, cardiac output or of a normal heartbeat. So um, the, these these hearts will be injured and hypoxic. And that results in something called myocardial stunning. So the myocardium is not able to contract as effectively and uh, we end up with a reduced ejection fraction and a reduced cardiac output which in turn uh, results in poor perfusion to the already injured myocardium. We also get a calcium influx as a result of injured myocytes. So as most people were probably aware, if you remember back to your biochem, uh, um, calcium is an important part of the myosin actin sliding filament theory of muscle contraction uh, and muscle relaxation is completely reliant on the reabsorption of calcium into the sarcomere. Well, what happens when myocytes are injured? Uh, areas of a heart muscle become flooded with calcium and they become unable to relax. So you get areas of what's called hypercontracture. And this is really important to bear in mind when we think about blood pressure control later because uh, we have areas of the heart that um, will be both hypercontracted and then hypotonic, so uh, 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 not able to contract as well, all of which results in an impact on our blood pressure. And you'll notice how I've not mentioned fluid shift. So uh, when we're thinking about trying to reverse some of that hypotension, filling an already struggling heart with yet more fluid to uh, to deal with may not be the most appropriate and, and necessary thing to do. 
And then in addition to that, that brings us on to the final part, which is the underlying pathology. So uh, obviously, if they've gone into cardiac arrest, uh, there's a reason that that's happened. As we said, 80% of these will be a cardiac origin. This is normally uh, an MI, isn't it? But it could be a PE, aortic dissection. Um, it could be somebody who's had an intracranial hemorrhage. So we have to bear in mind the underlying pathology that caused them to go into cardiac arrest uh, may have been re- reversed as a part of our treatment, but uh, may also be um, ticking along in the background and may require some intervention from us. So that's a huge amount of theory, and uh, I promise that uh, that is probably the limit of our cellular level discussions about biochemical reactions and things like this. Um, so we're going to talk and discuss now the actual tangible practice and the the uh, you know we've got that theory, but how does that inform our practice? What is that going to change uh, about how we treat these patients? And this is about ROSC. Simon, it'd probably be good to talk about how we're going to recognise this. So when are we going to declare a patient as having sustained a ROSC? When we get a pulse back. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, uh, yeah, so when... <laughs> you you, def- you definitely need to uh, expand on that because I'm sure people are going. Well, yeah, that's that's not that <laughs> that's not that un- controversial, is it? Well, to, no, it's not. No, it's not. So, um, okay, so recognizing ROSC, there, there obviously is, um, you know, more to it than than just finding a pulse. So, obviously, whilst we're in arrest, every two minutes we're going to be doing our rhythm checks, um, and then depending on what we find is depending on whether we check for a pulse. So we the the when we find ROSC, that might be at the point where we come to a rhythm check and we check for a pulse, we find one, uh, and that will be likely with a rhythm compatible with life, such as a PEA. Um, or it could be a patient who is in VT and has a pulse, um, but I think other rhythms compatible with life are, are more likely. What else could happen is that we have a patient who is in a shockable rhythm and we shock them and we revert that patient into um, into like a, a rhythm compatible with life. And then we're going to carry on our CPR um, for another two minutes, unless the patient's showing definitive signs of life and kind of actively waking up in front of us. Because even when we do restore circulation, we often still don't, in the first couple of minutes, achieve significant cardiac output in order to detect a palpable pulse. So that's one way of recognising ROSC, is that we, at some point during our arrest, we get a palpable pulse. The other way to detect it is with an ETCO2 spike. So what we might be doing is we might be resuscitating our patients. Hopefully, if you've got a good arrest ongoing with a definitive airway, and obviously with that definitive airway, uh, one would hope that you'd all have ETCO2 monitoring. And then if we have good CPR, we're going to hopefully have some an ETCO2 reading. Now, if that ETCO2 reading was to suddenly spike that can be a sign of returning spontaneous circulation. Now, we get that ETCO2 spike because, despite the fact that we are circulating blood with CPR, no CPR, even with mechanical devices, is as effective as a working heart that has good cardiac output. 
So what we might find is as we restore cardiac output, suddenly all of this cellular CO2 that has been created as a result of the anaerobic metabolism that's occurred during the hypoperfusion that's caused by our arrest is then suddenly circulated back and starts to get ventilated off. So we see this spike of CO2, which occurs when we initially get a ROSC. Now, I don't know about you, Josh, but if I see that spike, it makes me think that we likely have achieved ROSC, but I don't stop. If I'm in the middle of a cycle, I don't stop CPR unless, as I said earlier, the patient's showing significant signs of life until we get to the two-minute cycle. Uh, yeah, that's correct, and that's what the guidelines say, isn't yeah. it? So uh, often uh, when I'm team leading, I will announce to the team that we've, we've witnessed the spike and that I anticipate a ROSC. And I think as long as you don't have other things to do at that point, it's completely reasonable to begin to prepare for ROSC. But it's, uh, yeah, we will continue that two minute cycle um, because it's a, it's a little bit like, isn't it? It's a little bit like starting an engine on a cold day. So you, your cardiac output is going to take a minute to, to improve. And uh, equally, it's, it's highly possible that it, it could just be um, a new new compressor who's got a bit more energy or something like that that's a really good analogy actually i've never thought of it in that way but yeah it's quite quite right so those are our kind of two predominant ways that we're going to identify that we have a rosc and then once we get to our two minute check we're going to confirm that by checking pulses now there is a certain amount of evidence that obviously the accuracy of healthcare professionals finding a pulse is questionable so I th I think it's a I, I you know if you're being really simple yes if you have a pulse you more than likely have ROSC but I think the the pragmatic practicalities of of confirming and recognizing ROSC with this is why we made all those ooh noises at the start isn't it is it's probably wrong to say it's just done on the pulse check it's a cumulative element and it's a picture building aspect so yes we're going to feel for a pulse I always feel for a pulse in fact I always feel for a pulse with two people because we know we're bad at it we'll link to some some research on the website that that looked at this they did a, a, a resuscitation with uh, three people blinded to pulse checks um, two of whom were using uh, either ultrasound or, or doppler um, to detect whether or not there was flow and then um, uh, the third person was using pulse checks and s something like on seven occasions that uh, the person doing the pulse check uh, was convinced that they had an output and had a pulse the patient was actually in asystole so uh, we know that there's poor as you said, Simon, we know people are quite poor at determining whether or not a pulse is present, that the inter-rater reliability probably is increased if two of you are feeling and confirm that you feel a pulse. But but by no means is that the most accurate uh, and the, the, the single um, thing that we should be bearing in mind. It's a, a cumulative element of looking at what the entire CO2 is doing, looking at, you know, what's going on on the monitor, looking at you know, are there other positive signs that, that we might have had a ROSC? Uh, and I guess if there's doubt, 
then continue CPR, continue optimizing until you're certain. Uh, I would say it, it's not at all wrong and it happens all the time. If we, you know, someone says they feel a pulse, some person says, I'm not quite sure and the end title's not moving really, you know, not really helping you in that decision, then we'll just continue for another cycle and give a bit more adrenaline until we are sure. That's, you know, that's normal. That happens. And I, and I think the research council stresses that, 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 you know, actually you're not going to cause any harm by continuing chest compressions in a patient that you do have a uh, return of spontaneous circulation so i think that's a good take-home point that you know we should emphasize that if you have doubt about whether you've achieved rosc then just continue your resuscitation and it will just buy you time for you know more checks to be done um, and other things to do i think the worst thing that we could do at that point is you know to stop and lose all of that perfusion that we've gained if the patient is still in cardiac arrest yeah agrees uh, and what you can do again to just further maximize um your chances of uh of, of correctly identifying a pulse is um when whilst someone's doing cpr whilst you're getting ready for a rhythm check particularly this is the case if you've got uh, a lucas on um but e- equally it can be done with manual cpr as well is um during those compressions you can sometimes feel a pulse at a pulse site and that just helps you localize in where you're feeling and then it's easier to detect the absence of that sensation rather than whether or not you're feeling your own own pulse within the patient so again that can be a useful way to improve the accuracy of your pulse checks although that's um that's from the journal of josh not from any evidence structure (laughs) and the um where, where do you feel for your pulses? Because when I used to work pre-hospitally, it was always carotid. But actually, since I've been in hospital, I've kind of changed to femoral. I do both, so I get somebody to feel at the neck and someone to feel for. Yeah, me. yeah. I, th- I think that's a fun- that's a that's a really good good idea. Actually, I think that's um, really good. And one thing I do do is once I have established a rosc, if I have enough resources at scene, uh, which isn't always possible, but I would like to try and keep someone i mean it's easy for me because i work in an a&e and the patient's static um and we don't have to carry them downstairs we don't have to like wheel them out on trolleys and various things i do like to try and keep someone on the pulse um once it's definitely been established that it's there um because then they can let me know if we lose that pulse and so we can immediately resume resuscitation because obviously remember if you have a patient with a rhythm that is compatible with life that doesn't necessarily mean uh, with pulseless electrical activity that you do have a mechanical cardiac output with that. So, you know, it's possible that the monitor doesn't change, but actually you lose the output. Um, and then obviously you're back into a PA arrest and need to resume your um, resuscitation. Yeah, completely agree. And the, the, the absolute right person that, that, that should be doing that is the person on the airway, isn't it? So uh, the person that is ventilating, they should have nothing else to do other than focus on doing absolutely perfect ventilation and having their fingers on the patient's pulse with their their spare hand if they have it. They should not be involved or be asked any other questions that don't relate to those two functions because, as we'll, we'll talk about later, um, you, you know, getting ventilation right is difficult and uh, we know you know we know dedicated people to that job don't do it perfectly so uh, they should absolutely have nothing else affecting their bandwidth it uh it makes me cringe every time i go places and see there's a there's a video and and you know like we've all been guilty of this and before we knew some of this stuff in in the past and we have resource limited areas when we work pre-hospitally you know we both know josh we've both done oskies at university where it's me and one other person who runs a full als does a full intubation cannulates gives drugs and we leave our ECA doing chest compressions for like 20 or 30 
30 minutes whilst we're running this oski type of rest we know that that's not a, that's not good we know that that's not practical we know that we need a team attempt at resuscitation where resources allow but it, like i said it does make me cringe when they show that video of the uh of like the paramedic trying to um kneel bag on they've like tubed a patient yeah, they're trying yeah. to kneel and the 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 tight cpr yeah bag with their yeah, the, yeah the tidal volumes on 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 that and the 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 shocking ventilation is just it's it's just it's just horrid to watch but it seems to come up with quite a lot of stuff that i'm on about giving examples of poor poor ventilation <laughs> so um yeah I, I hope people know what i'm talking about by that video but it's um it's always a bit like oh my god <laughs> So uh, actions and confirming ROSC then, uh, what are we, what are we going to do? So the most important thing is to reassess. So we need to start again from the top, our A to E approach, and we need to go through that from the start. So we'll cover that in a minute. But before we go into that, this is something that I feel that some people are uncomfortable with, especially around pediatrics and pediatric cardiac arrest is how long do we wait on scene for after we establish ROSC? And I still see people to this day be like, right, we've got a ROSC, let's go. And it's not necessarily in the best interest of the patient. Josh, tell us um, a little bit about how long we should wait for on scene to stabilise. Yeah, sure. So the the service that I work in, and I would assume this is a national thing because it's a post-ROSC bundle of care. Now, we're really trying to get away from just thinking about this in bundles and key performance indicators. But but one in the trust that I work for is, is we're going to wait 10 minutes. And so you shouldn't be leaving scene until at least 10 minutes post your ROSC time. And the reason for this is is numerous. And and again, it's worth talking about, isn't it? Because you, you ask people, well, why are we doing that? And they think and they say, well, because it's in the bundle. But why is it in the bundle? Well, for a number of reasons. The first one is probably because of the the bimodal distribution that rearresting will occur in. So if you plot... Um, you know, post post ROSC, uh, the patients that go back into cardiac arrest. If you plot that on a graph, uh, what that looks like is a double bell graph. One with probably the the peak within the first ten minutes or there, so so in- increasing sharply uh, in those initial few minutes post arrest. Uh, sorry, post ROSC, and then tape beginning to taper off to a lower level of increased chance of of rear rest and then the second spike would be hours down the line and essentially the takeaway there is if we can get these patients past the first 10 minutes the likelihood that they're going to rear rest the likelihood that we're going to sustain that rosc uh is increased and what we don't want is if we can you know just mathematically guess that you know the coin flip of when this patient is going to rear rest uh well there's a good chance it's in that first 10 minutes we really don't want that to be whilst we're stuck in a lift or whilst we're halfway down the stairs with an oxygen bottle precariously balanced and in between their legs and you know the team scattered all around the place so we need to wait 10 minutes uh, so the patient declares themselves. Are they going to declare themselves as someone who's going to uh, very quickly re-arrest, um, which if we're static in a position, we're going to see that occurring and we can hopefully take interventions to mitigate that. Or are these patients that uh, will get past that 10 minutes, in which case we're in a safer time frame in which to, to extricate them? 
The other reason is because there is at least 10 minutes of work to be done in reassessment and doing all of these really meaningful ROSC things um, that we absolutely should not be ready to move the patient for at least 10 minutes, let alone, you know, just hanging around uh, twiddling our fingers. We're, we're not going to be doing that at all. We're going to be working really, really hard for these 10 minutes. So, you know, we shouldn't be even in a position where we're ready to, to, uh, to move. That said, there is a difference between moving in 10 minutes and getting ready to move. So, it is completely appropriate to start activating some concurrent activity, getting people to go get scoops, you know, splitting the scoop, getting it out to, um, you know, getting out to length, asking our ECA colleagues or technicians, not, not, I'm only saying them because in my experience, they are the best people to figure out how to go and get you out of the house rather than sending a, another paramedic to do it who will, if it's me, probably miss something or uh, take as the most convoluted route instead of realizing there's double doors at the back of the property that we could have gone out so you know send the best member of the team to go and plot your way out you know we can start doing all of that in this time uh, and work smart but we absolutely shouldn't be trying to get this patient out to the truck within within that time frame it's that time that that buys us not only to formulate an extrication plan but it allows us the time to do the a to e assessment that i said we need to do as the first port of call so that brings us nicely then to the actual stuff that we need to do for our post-ROS patients and gives us the 10 minutes we need to do our A to E approach. And that A to E deserves an entire episode in itself. So we're going to split this into two halves. So you've heard the first part of post-ROS so far. And then in the next episode, we're going to talk about that A to E assessment and what we need to do in managing our post-ROS patients. Okay, so let's summarise. We've discussed how we should think of the post-ROSC patient as a pathological process rather than simply a patient with a collection of performance indicators that we need to achieve. Post-ROSC syndrome is a collection of symptoms as a result of the hypoxic insult of cardiac arrest. This is reperfusion injury, which might be responsible for up to 50% of our cellular damage, hypoxic brain injury, myocardial dysfunction, and the underlying precipitating cause. We need to work hard to understand and correct these elements, ensuring that we're optimising care to repay the hypoxic debt that's built up. Evidence tells us that we're poor at feeling pulses accurately, so diagnosing ROSC is a cumulative thing based on pulse checks, rhythm analysis, end-tidal CO2 readings and the picture of the patient presenting to us. Consider using two people to feel for pulses at central locations to improve the accuracy. Feeling our pulse sites during compressions, particularly if we're using a Lucas or auto-compressor device, can often result in being able to feel where our pulse will be. This helps to localise in on the location, ready for pulse checks, as it's easier to detect the absence of this sensation than trying to find the pulse from scratch. Once we have ROSC, there's lots for us to achieve, so we need to pause, reassess, and ensure the team are aware of our new priorities. And exactly what that entails, we'll cover in part two. So make sure that you're subscribed and following this feed so that you get updated when it's released and check back with us next week for part two. All that's left to say then is as always, you can find our references used to compile the episode on our website, generalbroadcast.org.uk, as well as our previous back catalogue of the podcast to tide you over until next week. But thanks very much for listening and we'll see you for part two.